The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. Would you pray with me as we get started here this morning? Lord Jesus, we, um, we thank you again for our time together. We thank you that, uh, that God, we, um, although we were helpless, although we were hopeless, um, God, you came for us. You didn't leave us in that state. And so this morning, nothing um, has, has changed as far as our need is concerned. Lord, we, um, we still need you. Uh, Lord, we need you to speak to us now. We need you to meet with us now. Um, so God, again, our prayer is the same. Accomplish much for your name and for your fame and accomplish much for our joy. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So today, like I already said, is the first Sunday of Advent, which is like crazy. Again, it's in November and it's a warm outside, but this is it. Like Christmas time is here. Anybody get out Black Friday shopping? It's okay. We won't judge you. I'm just kidding. I will. What is wrong with you? Anyway, I uh, I, I love this time of year, right? And so for us, this is, um, I, I think that, that this time of year, our theme for, for this Advent season is going to be a season of surprise. And, and if you were a, a kid growing up... Well, who was not a kid growing up? What does that mean? Anyway, when you were a kid growing up, uh, that's what how, like Christmas was, right? It was all about surprises. And, and I mean, particularly we're talking about presents, really. And when you think about like bad presents, anybody get bad presents as a kid? Like it was a bad surprise. Anybody get a Ralphie, like uh, a pink bunny um, pajama costume? Anybody get one of those? No? That'd actually be pretty cool. But uh, maybe you got a bad present like that. Maybe you got a good surprise. Maybe it was a really good surprise. I think the best Christmas surprise surprise I ever got as a kid was like a puppy. And isn't that like, that's the American thing, right? Like you get a puppy and that's so surprising. And, and, and then I had a surprise for my parents, which was that all the promises I made of taking care of the dog and walking it and all that other stuff, surprise, I'm not going to do it. So anyway, we, we really, really had like, it was, it was a season of surprises. And, and, and so uh, following along that same thing, uh, that same theme, our, our theme for the morning, Advent, this, this, this Sunday, we're, we're representing hope. And so uh, our theme for this morning is the surprise of hope. If you have your little notes there, you should have seen that at the top, the surprise of hope. And to start talking about this particular surprise and, and how it relates to, to Jesus and how it relates to us, um, I have to start with the surprise of family. Because, you know, even around like the holidays, you get together with family and there are surprises. Sometimes they're, they're not the best surprises, right? Like maybe somebody in here, maybe you guys got a cousin Eddie? Anybody? Anybody in here have a cousin Eddie, right? That's not the best surprise. By the way, if you say, no, I don't, guess what? You are the cousin Eddie. So like, it's, it's not necessarily the best. And, or like, maybe you have like a family member who comes in, they're like, Merry Christmas. Who wants to talk about politics for three hours, right? Like those are bad surprises, but also they're good surprises that come with your family around the, the holidays. This is the time where people, they, they meet the, the newest baby or, or, or they meet the, uh, you know, the person that someone's engaged to or, you know, maybe, maybe this is a time of year that you spend with this particular family member that you don't spend any other time with. And, you know, you really love them and you connect with them. And that's, that's fantastic and that's wonderful. And, um, but regardless of uh, if it's a, a good surprise or bad surprise from your family, there's one thing that's not a surprise about family. And it's this, you can't pick your family. Like that's not, that is not a surprise. We all know that you can't pick your family. Because if you could, let's be honest, our families might look a little different, right? Like, let's be honest. Like, everybody in here, maybe our last names would all be Rockefeller. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, maybe you would make some different choices. I know I, know I would. Mom and Dad, I love you. 
but I would, I'd be Jay-Z and Beyonce's kid. I would, I absolutely would. That kid, I don't know his name, but he's cool. Like, that's it. Like, I don't know anything else about him, but he's got to be cool. Like, I, I, I would make some changes, and we all would. And here's what's so surprising about that is that Jesus could pick his family, and Jesus did pick his family. And, and I don't just mean his immediate family. I'm not talking about his moms and his pops. I mean, all the way back, he controlled his own lineage, right? Because he's God, and he's perfectly sovereign, and, and before anything was, he was, all right? So he absolutely picked his family. And that's what's so surprising, because if you look at Matthew chapter 1, and, and that's kind of of our, I guess if we have a base text for today, that's where our base text is. If you look at Matthew chapter one and you look at the genealogy of Jesus, you see like he picked this family. And what's so surprising about it is like, this isn't just like a family of superstars, all right? Like, like this family, yeah, there are heroes of the faith there, but there are also um, some villains, right? There are role models and there are cautionary tales. Like, like basically what I'm saying is in Jesus's family tree that he put together himself, there are tons of knots, right? Or knot heads, whatever you want to refer to it, right? But there are, there are knots in this family tree. Like it is not, it's, it's not the perfect family. And you think like, why would he do that? Like he could pick his own, his own uh, family tree. And I think in the first century, as people are reading Matthew chapter one and they're reading Reading, they're reading uh, the genealogy of Jesus, a first century audience, they necessarily, wouldn't necessarily been, been very impressed with this, this cast of characters that were in front of them. And, and also something surprising about uh, the genealogy of Jesus is the inclusion of women. That was weird. Like there are women in this genealogy that wouldn't have been normative for the time. And so there are five women listed in, uh, uh, in Jesus's lineage. But, but even in that genealogy, the, the intriguing thing is not just that they're women, but it's the type of women that are included. Now, we'll talk about Mary another day, but I want to talk about his grandmothers. The grandmothers that are included in this lineage are an interesting choice, Jesus. Here we go. He's got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And like I said, today we're talking about the surprise of hope. And I want to show you today that, that this surprising list of grandmothers we're talking about serves and supports our hope. And real quick, before we move forward, let me define hope because it's a churchy word. It might mean a lot of different things, a lot of different people, right? Um, and so I want to define it. What is hope? Hope is a future faith in the goodness of God. Now I've preached about this before. And so that's where we get this, this is where I'm getting this definition from, but it's future faith in the goodness of God. It's not just trusting him now or trusting him then. I trust my future to him. I trust that he's going to be God and, and his goodness is going to be there for me no matter what the future holds, right? So it's a, it's a future faith. It's faith projected forward into the future. God, I trust you with what's to come, right? And, and hope is informed by the past and the present, right? So, so for example, we see how good God has been, how, God, how good God is, and therefore God will be good. He will continue to be good. So just as he's proven himself trustworthy in the past, now I can trust him in the future. And so Jesus' interesting choice in family life here is going to serve our hope in the same way. I want to show you today the, the particular way that each of these ladies stories in the context of Jesus's life reveals Jesus as the source of hope for our lives. And this is really going to be a surprise of hope this morning. So 
Let's start right at the top. You got your notes there, right? The life of Tamar. Let's start with Tamar, right? Or Tamar, however you want to pronounce it. And if you want to read uh, this story, then, then I encourage you to go back to Genesis chapter 38. But let me just kind of tell it to you. So Judah had chosen Tamar as a wife for his son, Ur. Um, but Ur was such a wicked man that God killed him. So guess what? He doesn't, uh, now, now um, we have a widow here. What's going to happen? So Judah then ordered Ur's brother, Onan, to marry the widow in order to produce uh, an heir as was the legal custom of the time. However, Onan was super happy to, to have sex with her over and over again, but he would not marry her and he would not impregnate her, right? And I, I just lost the entire student section. They're all in Genesis 38 now. They're like, what is happening? No, for real. So so this is what's going on. And eventually, so, so she's left as a wandering widow, right? She doesn't know what she's going to do. She doesn't have an heir. She doesn't have a husband. What is she going to do? Well, Judah's, uh, Judah's wife eventually dies, and so Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute. I'm serious, and they're all, Genesis 38, I'm serious, check it out. Disguises herself as a prostitute, tricks her father-in-law into believing she's a prostitute, so he has sex with her and impregnates her with twins, and so then uh, later, like, she, so he never figures out who she is, and so he leaves and, like, tries to send word back to her, and, 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 and she's gone. And they're like, we don't know who you're talking about. And so anyway, Tamar shows up and she is pregnant. And so, um, so Judah's like, oh, you're pregnant. Well, that's not good because you don't have a husband. You've, uh, and, and like, like my son's dead, so it's not my heir. So therefore you, uh, you've like dishonored the family and all that. So I'm going to go ahead and order that you be put to death. And then in the most incredible Mari Povich way, uh, she says, no, you're the baby daddy. And so obviously, so then Judah calls off the death and it's there when he realizes, hang on, those are my kids, all right? So this is a crazy story, all right? Like this is a crazy narrative. And Jesus said, yeah, that's in my family, right? Like he's like, no, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna put that in my family. What is going on here? Why include this really strange uh, story and narrative in your family line, right? And, and, and also, by the way, this, for Tamar, it's not like the best story. Like we don't have evidence that she ever like repented, that she went to Judah and was like, hey, I'm sorry about that, right? Like we have no, no, like she did what she did and that's it, right? And, and so ultimately, like I can't say, here's what God was thinking and here's why he put it in. But here's, here's my best guess of how I think this informs our hope. And here it is. It reveals that Jesus is our hope in our brokenness. Jesus is our hope in our brokenness. It reveals that Jesus doesn't shy away from the brokenness that's in all of us, all right? He doesn't. He goes straight towards it. It was in his family line. And this is really a display of brokenness, right? You might say, you might look at tomorrow and say like, what is wrong with you? right? Like you are, that is disgusting. You are like, like you are diabolical. Why would someone do something like this? There's something wrong with you. But, but you know what? Basically Tamar was desperate. She didn't know what to do. She didn't trust the Lord to provide for her. She took things into her own hands and this is what happened. And think about it. Haven't we all been there? Haven't you ever been surprised at the depths of your own brokenness? Haven't you? Haven't you ended up in a place and you've gone, how did I end up here? How did I, like, where did that thought come from? Where did those words come from? 
from? Where did that action come from? Haven't we all been there? We've, we've, we've all done that. Like, like no one starts off going like, you know what? Um, I, I hope this disagreement uh, leads to me never speaking to my parents again and, and, and we like die completely separate from one another, right? Like I hope that that happens. No, like, like we are surprised constantly by the depths of our own brokenness and where it takes us, right? Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is, right? So we can understand this type of brokenness because it is our brokenness. And what is your response to the depths of your own brokenness when you come face to face with that in yourself and you're like, oh, how, like, Lord, how did I end up here? What is your response? I'll tell you mine. It's just like Paul's response. Like, God, the I don't understand myself. The stuff I don't want to do, I do. The stuff I do want to do, I don't do. And, and there's guilt and there's shame. And, and I feel so unworthy to approach God. I feel unable to approach God. And Tamar's story is in Jesus' lineage to underline the fact that Jesus doesn't shy away from brokenness. Mark two seventeen. Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And we see him doing this over and over and over again in the gospels. He doesn't come face to face with brokenness and do what we do. Like, like we're embarrassed by it. We want to be away from it. Like we, we, we are, you know what? We're separated from God. No, no, he doesn't do that. Like he draws in close to it. And one of my favorite stories that comes to mind is in John chapter four, where Jesus goes to this well and there's a Samaritan woman there. By the way, Samaritans, like, you know, enemies of God's people, they didn't like each other very much. And so there's a Samaritan woman there. There's already a strike against her and, and she's there at the, at the heat of the day. Why is that important? Because no one does anything in the heat of the day if they can help it. But she's there. Why? Because, well, um, she don't want to be there when other people are there. And so as he's talking to her, like he reveals, look, I know what's going on with you. She's had multiple husbands and now she's living with a man who's not her husband, right? And so Jesus is, is in interacting with that brokenness and still Jesus in the middle of her brokenness reveals himself as the Messiah. He reveals himself as her way out, as her help her, which is incredible. Jesus right there interacts with that brokenness. He doesn't go, ooh, look who this is, goodbye, right? And the disciples think he should. In fact, here's what happens. In John chapter four, it says, they marveled, that's the disciples, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Jesus doesn't shy away from this brokenness. The disciples are thinking, Jesus, do you know who this is, right? Do you know this is a Samaritan woman? What are you doing talking to her, right? Like, do you know her reputation? Do you know her family? And I imagine Jesus' response would be, yeah, I absolutely do. Do you know my family? Like, I came for her. I came for people just like her. So Jesus doesn't absolutely does not shy away from our brokenness. He understands it. It's in his family. He gets it. Hebrews 4.15 says, this high priest, that's Jesus of ours, understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So when you're face to face with your own brokenness and sexual sin, he says, yeah, yeah, I know what that's like. Or apathy and laziness, he says, yeah, yeah, I know what that's like. Difficulty in a family relationship, yeah, I know exactly what that's like. When you're, when you're dealing with pride and anger, he says, yeah, I know what that's like. When you're shattered on the floor of, because of your own brokenness, Jesus is saying, I know 
control what that's like. He's not running away from you saying, gross, get away from me. He's running towards you saying, I know what that's like. And he's your hope in brokenness because not only does he say, I know what it's like, but look what he continues to say. Look at verse 16 of Hebrews 4. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we'll find grace to help us when we need it most. So not only does he say, I know what it's like in your brokenness. He says, you come to me and I'll help you. You come to me and I'll do something about it. And he doesn't say, you come to me sheepishly, you, you sneak in. No, no, no. He says, you come boldly to me and I will help you. Isn't that incredible? That's the hope we have in Jesus. We have hope in our brokenness. So the next time your brokenness is kicking you in the face, the next time you are are drowning in guilt and shame, you remember Jesus' family. You remember Tamar is there. And you remember that Jesus says, no, 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 in your brokenness, you don't run away from me. I'm running straight to you. And I know about it. And I can help you with it. He's our hope in our brokenness. The second uh, uh, lady there in his story is the life of Rahab, Rahab. If you'd like to read this, you can go back to Joshua chapter one and two, but let me kind of tell you what's going on. So Rahab was uh, a Canaanite, all right, already a, a strike against her. Basically, if you read in the Old Testament, like the Canaanites are um, the Hamburglar to the Israelites, uh, Ronald McDonald. Is that fair? All right, like they are, they are an enemy of God's people. And now they're inhabiting uh, the promised land for God's people. And so, um, so God has promised that he would deliver Rahab's seri- uh, a city of Jericho to Joshua. And so Joshua says, you know what? I'm going to send in some, uh, some spies. Um, so he sends in a couple of spies. And, and some of the people, uh, some of the soldiers there, they start to track the spies. And they're looking for the spies. And they end up at Rahab's house. So Rahab is a Canaanite woman. Not only that, but Rahab is a prostitute. And so she hides the men, lies to the soldiers, saves their lives. Um, and then, so, and then she, she converts, starts following Jehovah, and ultimately God makes her the great-great-grandmother of King David, which is an incredible story. And I think Rahab's story underlines that Jesus is our hope for forgiveness. Jesus is our hope for forgiveness. The sin that's most attributed to Rahab is, is, the, is, is prostitution. She's referred to as Rahab the harlot over and over and over again. And, and so uh, basically the sin that's attributed to her is sexual sin. And, and I think that that's helpful to us because uh, even the Bible differentiates between sexual sin and other sin. It says in 1 Corinthians six eighteen, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. And I think this is so helpful to us that Rahab uh, represents sexual sin forgiven because everyone in this room is affected in some way by sexual sin. And it seems to be, for some reason, heavier, if you will, than other sins, right? And I deal with a, a lot of people who obviously are trying to live upright lives. And so in dealing with, with trying to live an upright life, we've got to deal with the things that, that try to pull us down. We've got to deal with the temptations. We've got to deal with our failures. And, and so I've dealt with so so many types of people who are dealing with the consequences of sexual sin. And there's something about sexual sin that it seems like the consequences, they're, they're so deep, they're so lasting, they're so great. And so I've dealt with men and women suffering in their marriage because of the sexual ghosts that both of them brought together in their marriage. And men who daily struggle with dealing, with, with treating women in all purity as, as mothers and sisters. And men and women who've missed the gift of intimacy that comes with sex and marriage 
marriage because of choices they made and teenagers dealing with sexual addictions and retirees drowning in the same sexual addictions but are ashamed to deal with them. And and sexual sin seems to carry with it some of the, the greatest social stigmas, doesn't it? I mean, like, for example, you say she's a gossip. That doesn't have as much power, as much punch as saying she's a whore, right? There's something about it that's heavier. There's something about it that, that, that hurts us more, it seems. And, and James 5.16 tells us what? To confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And, and if people are doing that, and I pray that you are, if you're doing that, then how many of you have heard confessions of pride and greed and, and all kinds of other things and anger and, 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 and impatience and all kinds of other things? But how many of you have, have heard confessions of sexual sin? It doesn't come up a lot. Is it because it's not out there? Absolutely not. It is out there. It's not that it's not out there, but there's something about it that's so, that's so shame-filling, right? There's something about it that's, so, that, that's, just, that's just heavy. We deem it that way. It just, it just is. But it doesn't matter what the sin is or how heavy we deem it or how shameful it is culturally. Jesus abundantly forgives his children. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. It doesn't say, if we confess these certain sins to him, if we confess sins to him that aren't sexual in nature. No, he says, if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. And why do I say, by the way, I say he forgives his children abundantly. Why do I say he forgives his children? Because Jesus doesn't just clean your name off when you come to him. Jesus gives you a new name. He gives you his very name. That's how forgiven you are. He doesn't just say, okay, yeah, move on. You're forgiven. No, no, no. He says, okay, you're forgiven in your mind. I'm going to give you a new life. He puts his name on you. He did that for Rahab. He, in Hebrews chapter 11, if there were a hall of fame for believers, it'd be in Hebrews chapter 11, right? This is, the, this is the, the best of the best, right? These are the heroes of our faith in Hebrews chapter 11. They've got e, uh, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Hephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. And in verse 31 of chapter 11, who is named among these great heroes of the faith? Who's named? Rahab. God gave her a new name. He restored her completely. And he does the same for us. John 1, 12 says, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. He put his name on us. That's how forgiven we are. He put his name on us. Jesus abundantly forgives his children. One of my favorite incidents of this in Jesus' life uh, and his earthly ministry in those three years is in John chapter 8. The Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery to him, and they said, hey, the law says to stone her. What do you say? And then what does Jesus respond? He says, hey, yeah, go ahead, throw the stones at her if you don't have any sin in your life, right? If you've never sinned, go ahead, chunk, chunk a stone at her, right? And of course, what do they do? Of course, they realize, no, they've sinned, and so they drop the stones and walk away. And then Jesus said this in verse 10. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. She was caught, all right? She was caught in adultery. So when they drug her before Jesus, she probably wasn't even completely clothed. She probably didn't, she, she, it looked like she had, just, uh, she had just done what they said that she had done. And they drag her before, and she's caught. And she doesn't deny it. There's nothing in the context, in, in the story, where she goes, no, they're lying. No, that's not me. They're lying. They're crazy. She doesn't do that. When they leave, and Jesus is just standing there, she doesn't say, hey, by the way, they're crazy. They're lying. No, she doesn't do that. She 
he's caught. And Jesus absolutely could have and would be just in doing so in condemning her. But what does he say? He says, you're forgiven. He abundantly forgives. So remember Rahab and the Lord's forgiveness and restoration of her. And remember, he's your hope because he abundantly forgives his children. Let's look at the, the third lady here in, this, uh, in his genealogy, the life of Ruth. Her story is a great love story. And, and, and so and Ruth is a, is a big part of her story, but also Boaz is another kind of their, 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 their story there together. And so basically, let me tell you her story. By the way, if you want to um, read about Ruth, um, try to remember this. Go to the book of Ruth. Got it? All right. So her mother-in-law, is Naomi, was widowed. Um, and then shortly after that, her two sons died, which happens to be Ruth's husband as well. So Naomi wanted to return to Bethlehem. She turns to her daughter-in-laws and she said, you know what? You go back to your homeland, you go back to your family, and you go back to serving your gods. I'm going to move on. Thank you so much for all you've done. Love you. Bye, right? And so what happens is um, uh, uh, one of the daughters leaves, but Ruth does not. So Ruth is not a part of Israel, right? She is a Moabite. She served other gods. Ruth is is a pagan idolater. That's who Ruth is. But Ruth says in chapter one, verse 16, Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I'll go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So not only is Ruth putting all her chips in on Naomi, she's putting all of her chips in on who? On God. She says, your God's now my God. I'm gonna serve him now. And I think that she actually does. Her future husband, Boaz, I think puts it the best way in chapter two. He says, the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. What's he saying? No, no, you're trusting him. You're taking refuge with him. And so she's trusting the Lord and he does not disappoint. The Lord blesses her abundantly, gives her, protects her, restores her, gives her a new name, gives her a godly husband, and then blesses her by putting her in the lineage of the Messiah. An incredible, incredible thing. And so God, when faced with Ruth's idolatry, proved himself worthy of worship by satisfying and blessing her. So through Ruth's story, in the context of Jesus' life, we learn that he, Jesus, is our hope for satisfaction. He's our hope for satisfaction. What do I mean by that? So Ruth was an idolater. What is an idolater? We're worshiping anything other than God. And we're all worshipers by design. Like that's how God made us to be. We worship by placing our trust and our affections and our devotion on something or someone. And we all worship because our worship is, in, is, is always and inextric, inextricably, excuse me, connected to our satisfaction. We are looking to be satisfied and fulfilled in the object that we worship. That's how we're wired. We're wired to be satisfied and fulfilled in the object that we worship. And that's what we're doing. And we become idolaters when we, when we seek that satisfaction and we worship things that aren't God. So misplaced worship is trust and affection and devotion placed mainly on anything other than God. I believe this thing to be most valuable. I believe this thing to make me happy. I'll give my energy mainly in the pursuit of this thing that is not God. And doesn't this sum up sin for us? 
I think it absolutely does. Like from the beginning, our sin is a worship disorder, right? It's us looking for satisfaction in other things. This will make me happy. This will give me joy. This will give me fulfillment and satisfaction. So I will give it my energy and my time and my devotion and my focus, right? That's why we sin. I care more, desire more, and devoted more to this thing or this person than I am to God. I want to make this thing or this person or whatever it is, I want to make it happy mainly more than I make God happy because I believe my fulfillment and my satisfaction will be found in that. And this misplaced worship, where does it lead us? It leads us further and further away from satisfaction and further down these roads and great consequences we never meant to walk in the first place. If you don't, if you don't believe me, look at Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 25, which gives us a, a chilling account of the, the road that misplaced worship leads us down. You won't be satisfied. You'll be enslaved to sin. Think about it. The, the love of stuff leads us to greed, which what? Swallows us alive. The love of ourselves, which is pride, which destroys relationships and it makes us an animal. And the love of other people leads us to being let down because people can't possibly be perfect. There's no lasting supply of joy in any object of worship outside of God himself. Because look at Psalm 145, 16. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Look what it says. He opens his hand. What does that mean? That means that our satisfaction, it's in his hand. He's the author of it. He owns it. He opens his hand. He satisfies what? The desire of every living thing. He is the author of joy and satisfaction. He'll satisfy like nothing else. He is your hope when it comes to joy and satisfaction. A great illustration of this from the life of Jesus is in Luke chapter 19. One of the things I love about having um, little kids is that uh, I get to read the Bible to uh, my kids. And and specifically, I I love telling these stories to Max because he has all kinds of questions and things like that. And and one one of the favorite stories to talk to him about is Zacchaeus because I love listening to him trying to say Zacchaeus. And so we talk about Zacchaeus and, and you guys probably know the story. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Uh, but anyway, no, he's, this, he's a tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. And, and, and so he wants to see Jesus. He climbs up into a sycamore tree. Why? Thanks, Mom. All right, for the Lord he wanted to see, right? So he climbs up there, and Jesus, in, in verse uh, 5, says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. What kind of joy? Extreme joy, extreme satisfaction and joy. Look at verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He is so satisfied in Jesus and in God that he would give up everything else in service of him. He had all these other things that he thought would satisfy him and make him happy. And we would say probably could, maybe should, but they didn't. He was rich, but he says, no, 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 that's, that's not doing it for me. Jesus is, he satisfied me. So you know what? I'm gonna give away half of everything everything I have. And then if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to take the half I have left and I'm going to pay them back 
fourfold of what I've stolen from them. He's saying, you know what? I'm giving it away, all right? My riches, they're not making me happy. Jesus makes me happy. And you say, but he had a great job. He's the chief tax collector. He's powerful. Do you think he had that job after he did that? Do you think that his bosses, those people looking over him said, oh, he just gave away half of his fortune and then he made himself poor by paying back everyone he's defrauded four times. Can we really trust this guy anymore? He's gone crazy. So what is he, what's he done? He's probably lost his job at this point too. But he's saying, you know what? People say their job is what fulfills them and will bring them satisfaction. It hasn't. I've got the best job I can get. I'm the chief tax collector. It hasn't. I will gladly give it up because Jesus is my satisfaction. Can you imagine this type of joy? This is the joy Jesus offers us. This is the satisfaction that's waiting for you. If you hope in Christ and you pursue him, this is the joy that you will discover over and over and over again. He is your hope for satisfaction. Let's look at the last lady here and uh, his last grandmother, let's say, the life of Bathsheba. You can read this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, but let me, let me pick this up here. Um, Matthew actually says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So who was Uriah the Hittite? Uriah, uh, Uriah was a son, uh, a son, a soldier in King David's army, and he was married to a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. Um, Uriah went off to battle. David remained back at the palace where he should not have been. He should have been at battle, and he's on the rooftop at night. He catches Bathsheba bathing and he's like, she's beautiful. I'm the king. Go get her. So he sends his boys to go get her. She comes back to the palace. Um, they sleep together. She gets pregnant. Um, and so to cover it up, David tries to cover it up. It doesn't work. Uriah's a very faithful guy. It doesn't work. So you're, so so David plots to kill Uriah and he does. Uh, he sends uh, Uriah out on the front lines, has everyone draw back and Uriah is killed. And then he takes Bathsheba as his wife and ultimately um, Bathsheba becomes uh, David's wife and the mother of King Solomon. And I've read this account countless times. And I've talked about it countless times. Probably the, the students are like, yeah, we've heard this before. Yeah, because I've probably talked about it a lot. It's an incredibly popular um, thing to think about. But you know what? I've never thought about Bathsheba as much in this story as I did this time in preparing for this sermon. And and, and I, I see her in a different light than I did before. And, and you may disagree with me, and that's okay. I have a microphone, and you're wrong. But I, I think, like, I've always identified Bathsheba as, like, maybe a temptress or an adulteress. But I don't think she represents that. She doesn't for me anymore. I, I think she represents a victim. And, and here's what I mean. David was on the roof, not Bathsheba. You know, I used to think that, but if you look at the context here, David's the one on the roof. I don't know if Bathsheba was, was doing something she wasn't supposed to be doing. In fact, she's washing in, in to, to, uh, for this ritual cleansing that she's supposed to be doing. She's doing what she's supposed to be doing. Then David sends men after her, right? And think about that. Like, she's just a, a, a woman here, and, and the king says, you come to me. So she doesn't, she doesn't necessarily know why she's coming, but is she going to tell the king no? Probably not. So he, she goes with uh, the king, and, and so I, I don't know what happens there, but, but I imagine that it'd be very difficult to resist or say no to the king. Um, and so she gets pregnant at this time, and then what happens after that? She goes to the king, says, I'm pregnant. Who plans to cover up uh, what they done. The king does. Who has Uriah murdered? The king does. When Nathan comes and confronts David about this soon, who does he confront and put the blame on 
whose shoulders? Both of them? David and Bathsheba, you both messed up. Who does he say? David, you messed up, right? He comes after David. So I think Bathsheba was a victim here. And we have this account. Why do we have this account here? Here's why. She reminds us that Jesus is our hope in the face of injustice. Well, how? God didn't ignore the injustice done, right? Nathan the prophet confronts David, uh, and David suffers, and, and, and God takes his son from him. And Bathsheba later then was blessed in the home of David. She became the mother to the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon, and she was added to the family line of the Messiah. And we don't live in a just world. We don't. I remember like growing up, my, my dad said this a thousand times. He said it one time. He said, uh, uh, life's not fair and then you die, right? And like, he's not wrong. Like we don't live in a just world and, and we live in a world where so many victims are just thrown away and the injustice is done against them. No one's doing anything to right them. And that's the world that we live in. But Jesus doesn't ignore injustice and Jesus doesn't throw away victims. I was thinking about this and I was going, who did Jesus interact with that best represents that? That best represents this idea that, that, that started with Bathsheba that, that God, that Jesus doesn't ignore injustice, doesn't ignore victims, but embraces victims. How, where does that, where does that go? Well, you know what? There's all kinds of things that come to mind, right? There are the marginalized of society. There are those who are cast off because they're disabled. There are those who are cast off because of uh, uh, just different cultural things. There are even children that, that were tried to, that, that, that people tried to keep away from him, right? Like there's so many people that he dealt with who were being dealt with in an unjust way that he saw them, he went after them. He, he pursued them. And then I started to think like of all the people that come to mind, who's the best example of this? Jesus is the best example of this. Jesus knows what it's like to be a victim. He knows very intimately what it feels like to be abused at the hands of an unjust authority. That's how he died at the hands of an unjust authority. So he's close to those who are victimized because he knows firsthand what it's like. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the broken hearted and saves the crushed spirit. Psalm 147.3 says he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Jesus knows what it's like to be a victim. It's in his family line and then he lived it and he'll make it right. Romans 12.19 says, don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is a mind to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. In an unjust world, remember that Jesus is our only hope in the, in the face of injustice. So he's our hope in, in our brokenness. He's our hope in forgiveness. He's our hope for satisfaction. And he's our hope in injustice. The last thing I, I want to point out to you that all four of these women, uh, I believe, teach us is that, number one, Jesus always accomplishes his work. Always. He always accomplishes his work. Uh, through the deceit of Tamar, God still accomplished his work. Through the service of Rahab, God still accomplished his work. Through the obedience of Ruth, God accomplished his work. Through the difficulty of Bathsheba, God accomplished his work. Jesus always accomplishes his work. And here's a surprising thing. Second thing I want to show you. And he's inviting us to participate. He always accomplishes his work and he's inviting us to participate. And it's up to you whether or not you will. Now, I don't know if, if Tamar repented or not. I don't know if she turned her life uh, around to the Lord and participated willingly in what God was doing. I don't know anything about Bathsheba. I don't know anything about her spiritual life. I don't know if she, if she was faithful to following the Lord or not. I do not know that. Maybe, so maybe they didn't participate in what God was doing, but he accomplished much in their lives anyway, didn't he? 
He always accomplishes his work. And if they chose not to participate in what he was doing, then they missed out on the joy. On the flip side of that, we have Rahab and Ruth, who we know participated. And so with Ruth, with Ruth, we celebrate her story as a hero of the faith. And Rahab, we already talked about it. She's listed in Hebrews chapter 11 with all these great heroes of the faith as an example. So it's up to you whether or not you place your trust in him. It's up to you whether or not you hope in him. And I think if you place your hope in him, your future faith in him, and you say, God, everything in front of me, I'm gonna trust you with, it's all yours. I think if you do that, you'll be surprised at what God will do. You'll be surprised in that hope with the joy that he'll bless you with. And I think the other way is true too. I think if you place your future faith in anything else, if you hope in yourself and your own strength and your own intellect and other people and, and other ideas and other things outside of God, then I think you'll also be surprised. You'll be surprised at where those paths take you, but they're not hope-filled paths, I can promise you that. So my prayer for you as we close today is that you would hope in God. All these things that might be drawing you away or trying to to crush that and keep you from trusting him with your future. I hope you'll remember Jesus' family and you'll remember his example and you'll trust him in brokenness and you'll trust him to forgive you and you'll trust him to satisfy you and you'll trust him in the face of injustice. He will be your hope. And so my prayer for you is Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for um, what you've done for us. We thank you so much that, Lord, um, we can have great and lasting and abounding hope in you that our, our futures are secure in you. And, and we don't have to base that. That's not baseless. We don't have to just say, well, he, he just, he'll take care of me. Like you constantly over and over and over again have proven yourself over and over and over again, worthy of our trust, worthy of our faith, the only one worthy of our hope. So God, may we choose to hope in you. For my brothers and sisters in this room, I I pray that they would not only hope in you, but God, they would willingly participate in what you're doing by hoping in you. That God, as they trust you with their future, they would honor you in their trusting of you. And that God, you'd bless them richly for trusting you. You'd You'd bless them richly in their hope. Lord, I also acknowledge that there might be people in here who, um, they still have no hope. They know who you are, but they don't know you. Like they're not trusting you with their future because they're not trusting you with their present. They're not trusting you with you now. That God, their week consists of doing whatever they want to do, making themselves happy, making other people happy. It never crosses their mind about serving you. It never crosses their mind about trusting you. God, my prayer for those people today is that, God, they would have the courage and the boldness to say, today's the day. I will hope in God from now on. That they'll say right now where they are, not out loud, but just in the quietness of their own minds and their hearts, they would say right now, God, I trust you. I trust what you did on the cross for me. God, please forgive me for all that I've done. And save me. Make me yours. 
God, I pray for those people who have communicated that to you today, that in this moment they be filled with hope, knowing that they are yours now and forever, that you're faithful and you're just to forgive them and cleanse them, that God, now, from now on, from now and forever, they're your child. And God, as they are here, you are their hope. And as they leave here, as they, as they, even as they die, you're still their hope. They'll be with you forever. So God, now as we stand and as we sing and as we continue to worship you through song, Lord, I pray you'd give us the courage to respond how we need to respond. Do much for your fame and for our joy in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.